My generals are merely dividing their forces and regrouping to allow Edis to attack your army unhindered. If necessary, they can then flank what's left of your forces to prevent a retreat. Nehusaresh watched the men moving a moment more. The horse under him tensed as his rider drew the reins tight, but before horse or rider could move, Atolia raised her hand and directed his attention with a languid finger to where Teleus lay on his stomach in the long grass on the ridge behind them, the crossbow in his hands cranked and aimed toward the mead. Treachery, said the mead. Diplomacy, said Atolia, in my own name, as the rest of her guard rose up from the grass behind their captain. Okay, I'm not necessarily saying that I'll have a book quote on my tombstone, but if I did, it would be diplomacy in my own name. Or a tattoo! That'd be metal! Yeah! Boston ThiefCon 2020. Matching tattoos, people. Let's do it. Welcome back, I'm Noelle. And I'm Caitlin. And this is the Atolian Archives, your Queen's Thief reread podcast to get you through the long wait for book six. It's July 28th, 2019. On today's episode, we discover just why it is that this book is called The Queen of Atolia. She's taking no prisoners. <laughs> well, except uh, technically she's taking no Husaresh prisoner. That, and, and she's still holding a bunch of the... Edesian's prison. Okay, she's taking a lot of prisoners, but <laughs> metaphorically, she's taking no prisoners. We get some more good background in this chapter on her relationship with Edis. Uh, before the battle, she's ruminating and says, I have always envied Edis to herself. And the narration says, Always it seemed to Atolia that Edis was running wild in the mountains while she was carefully kept and groomed in the king's palace of Atolia and goes into all the differences. Edith knew how to use a sword since childhood, how to ride a pony, she went on all the hunts, and her brother died of sickness and not assassination. At Edith's coronation, Atolia had poured her advice like vitriol into the ear of the new queen, watching her face whiten, viciously satisfied to be the one to tell the girl what the world was like when you were a queen, and then none of that advice had been needed. And it's interesting that Atolia considers the fact that she was never trained as a soldier, to be a limitation. It says she knew her limitations. So Edith has access to this part of leading people that she doesn't. Yeah. And also just protecting your own person. Mm-hmm. And I think that's related to agency. Mm-hmm. Atolia was never given any sort of agency to defend herself in that way. Yeah. And I don't know if Edith was taught those things in spite of being a younger child who wasn't expected to ascend to the throne or because of it. Like yeah. If, if Edis had been, if, if little Helen had been expected to become the queen of Edis from childhood, would she have been trained in a more conventionally feminine way? Like, was she allowed mm-hmm. to run wild because she uh, she had the, the older brothers and so she wasn't, yeah. she didn't have that pressure on her? That's a good question. That would be my first guess, mm-hmm. but... Mm, we see, I think, that Edith is a much less, like, their court isn't as bound by mm, protocol and those other things as Atolia's is. Mm-hmm. Like, the court culture is, I guess, different. Mm-hmm. And Atolia has this whole relationship with Edith that Edith is not necessarily experiencing. Yeah, this is very one-sided. Yeah. It's one of those things where you're like, oh, we've hated each other for years. <laughs> and then the other person is like, what? I, uh, what? 
Because this is all just just been going on in her mind. Yeah. And it's not like uh, Helen doesn't have any negative feelings towards her. But it's not so specific of constantly comparing the two of them. Mm -hmm. Because Edith is the one who's come out better in those comparisons. Yeah. And so she doesn't have any reason to dwell on that. Right. Atolia ends this contemplation period with, um, and then none of that advice had been needed. Edith had gone on as free in her mountains as Atolia had ever been enslaved. Edith, with her loyal ministers, her counselors, her army, and her thief to serve her. At any rate, she won't have her thief back, Atolia said. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, an idea that we're getting here, kind of over and over, is that the way that an individual rules a country, uh, is dependent on the people around them. Yeah. Like, you're never... There's all this, like, this question of, oh, can a woman rule alone? And, of course, a woman can rule alone. But, in a way, no one can rule alone. Right. Everything is about what kind of support you have. Yeah. And the kind of networks that you're able to build. Mm-hmm. And Atolia's lack of networks is why she was driven to become this type of ruthless ruler and to make all those decisions, but... Edith had a completely different situation politically. Yeah. But Atolia has built her own network. She has right. her her army of contract soldiers. Mm-hmm, who are all loyal directly to her, mm-hmm. not to the barons. She has Tileus. She has Aurelius. And so it's affected the kind of relationships and networks that she has built. Mm-hmm. So she only trusts the people that she has put in place, mm-hmm. who she knows have already proven themselves like beyond a doubt. Mm-hmm. Loyal. And that's related to the imagery of the ruler taking the name of the country and representing the whole body because it's not a single person. Mm-hmm. And you're not a single person anymore once you step into that role. It's entirely about everyone else. Yeah. And we also see this idea of your network with Sunus too, the first Sunus, because. Mm-hmm. He has, basically, all we really know of is he has the Magus, who is his primary advisor. And as soon as the Magus is abducted, so the Magus is sort of influencing all of his decisions, in, or whatever, his limited decisions that we know of in The Thief mm-hmm. and the beginning of the Queen of Atolia with, like, trying to get the gift and marry Edith, whatever. But then as soon as the Magus is abducted, Sunus starts making all these these poor decisions of going into war and he yeah. doesn't have his advisor to pull him back. It's interesting. And the three countries are more powerful together. So everything is like these increasingly large webs of yeah. relationships. And then it just gets bigger. So it's nice that we see the groundwork here in a way. Mm-hmm. A question that I wanted to ask about the structure of this book, reading this chapter, is where is the climax? Because this chapter feels like a climax, Mm -hmm. but the boat scene also felt like a climax. Yeah. And so is this like a very long falling action, this whole back section? But then also the last page also feels like a climax when (laughs) they, when they get to the bottom of, okay, we do both love each other. Yeah. I'm kind of thinking we have, I guess I would, I guess we could maybe call them at least two plot lines is... The mm-hmm. political one with the armies, etc., which this feels more of a climax for. Mm-hmm. And then the personal, which is the I love yous at the end. And then the boat scene is maybe both of those. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they intersect there. Yeah. That's very cool. Does it again. <laughs> the thief also has sort of that unconventional structure where there's 
something that feels very climactic more towards the middle. Mm -hmm. And then that resolves. And then there's another event or twist towards the end. Mm -hmm. That's something that makes this question of climax so ambiguous in all of her novels is is the twist. Mm -hmm. The placement of that twist. And what you know before and what you know after. Mm-hmm. There's a lot, there's so much unraveling to do. Yeah. Especially in this book, that you need that time. Mm-hmm. And that's different than, like, I think The King of Atolia and Conspiracy of Kings both have much more of a definite arc with a climax and then a denouement. Yeah. I'm, just, I'm trying, I'm trying to remember the plot <laughs> of King of Atolia. They're so... There's so much and so in all of them, they're so complicated. The structure of the second half of this book, or the structure of this entire book, feels a lot more like a setting up of dominoes mm-hmm. and then all the dominoes falling right. in an extended sequence of events. Maybe some of the dominoes are in the dark and then spotlights illuminate them. <gasps> I don't know. <laughs> so this is our last chapter with Nehuzeresh directly in it. Good riddance. Get out! <laughs> and he uh, he underestimates both Atolia and Edis in this chapter. He was fooled by Edis and Jen pretending to be lovers. Mm-hmm. By Edis and Atolia moving the army around mm-hmm. to put him in between them. By Atolia talking about, like, oh, Eugenides is too young to interest any woman who is queen and she needs someone older and experienced like you. <laughs> <laughs> He's no holds barred in this chapter. Oh, yeah. Like, he, he requests he, that she attend him. Right. And she she says to her attendant, me attend him? Oh, he does grow bold. Yeah. Tell him I'll be with him shortly. And the attendant said, he's in the outer room right now. And she said, how fortunate that I do not have to receive him in my nightdress. By all means, send him in. <laughs> and he doesn't, like, nowhere in his mind until it's revealed to him would he consider that Atolia would want to marry Jen, but also Which one I'm of the fair. Okay, <laughs> one of the assumptions that's his downfall is that he would never expect that Atolia and Edis would work together. Yeah, that's true. Which I mean, you know, kind of also fair because <laughs> they are. Wait, is but I think that's tied yeah, up still in his. War, right? It's tied up but in also, his assumptions about women. Yeah, because he thinks that. Edis is throwing strategy to the wind in order to rescue her male lover. Right. And Atolia is just ready to swoon over him and his pointy beard. (gasps) Something that I felt like I didn't quite understand it towards the beginning of this chapter is when Edis and the Minister of War are talking about whether they're going to go attack and drive out the Medes. Mm -hmm. And it's from Edis's perspective. And the narration says... To fail to attack was to leave him, Eugenides, and the other prisoners to whatever mercy Atolia and the Mede might show. Atolia would exact a hideous revenge either for herself or to prove herself to her allies. That's page 290. So if we're assuming that the Minister of War knows what's going on, Edis knows what's going on, and that comes to fruition a few pages later when mm-hmm. Edis shows up to drive out the Medes, what does that mean? Yeah. Because the... the the place that that's coming from seems to be the old assumptions about what Atolia is after, what her relationship with the Medes is. Right, but if Edis has in fact received and understood the clandestine message of, oh, okay, I'll marry Eugenides, then even if she did fail to attack and leave Eugenides there, 
she should know by now that Atolia wouldn't exact a revenge. So has she? I mean, you're right when you say that, you know, they must have gotten the message. Well, actually, wait a minute. Let's consider the other options. So Atolia has sent the Minister of War back saying, bring a message back on pain of death by 7 a.m., which could mean army. And Eugenides, he says here, has said to attack, which means army. So her agreement is conditional on this attack? I hadn't thought of that, but that would make sense. I mean, because in a scenario where Edis's army does not show up and they don't help Atolia drive out the Medes, what happens? I mean, is Atolia yeah. still in a position to marry Jen? I think that would be super, super difficult with Nehuzerish and his army still in the area yeah. and at court. And so I think maybe I Edis think that thinks that, that in that scenario, Atolia, in order to protect herself flips again yeah i think that's the only thing that would really make sense here Mm -hmm. that's interesting i had never realized i had never looked at those lines before and been like kind of you know thought about it deeper i didn't because it says to fail to attack was to leave him and the other prisoners to whatever mercy atolia and the mead might show referencing both of them together as a team yeah so if we don't drive the meat out he's with atolia Mm -hmm. and influencing her and they would make the joint decision of killing Jen or et cetera. Because in that, in that scenario, I don't see how Atolia would have another option. Yeah. We talked about this last episode, I think. I think, I think we said last episode, we think that's why Moira sent Nehuzrish to rescue them. Because, to rescue Atolia. Because if he hadn't done that, and they didn't have this battle sequence, they wouldn't have driven off the mead. Mm-hmm. He just would have been able to stay in the court. Mm-hmm. Oh, we had uh, a listener who sent us a message about interpreting that more romantically. Yeah, that was a great message. Yeah. About giving her, uh, who was it? That was from Tumblr user Zombie with two E's, um, who said that if Irene was simply forced to marry Jen, she'd never believe he really loved her, would probably never realize she loved him, so the gods needed them to love each other outright, and knowingly, or the little peninsula wouldn't be truly united. And so it's still, like, you, you could interpret that as having an ultimate political agenda. But it's more about, like, giving her her power back in order mm-hmm. to um, put her in a position to make this decision for her own reasons. Yeah, and it really makes you think about how much of the political is dependent on that love and trust. Yeah. Like, that's why they're able to be a team later. Yeah. It's about about networks and relationships. There's some gender in this chapter. Oh my goodness. The, um, uh, Nehusharesh points out to Atolia when she's just giving basically a PowerPoint presentation. Like, here's all the ways you tried to F me over. And here's (laughs) all the ways that I'm now going to kick you in the nuts. Um, and he reminds her that he gave her a lot of money gold that must be repaid and she said that you yourself said it was a gift uh and he says you know basically you're a woman and you don't understand what gifts mean in politics and she says if there is one thing a woman understands it is the nature of gifts they are bribes when threats will not avail yeah and so like the um the things that men give you and do for you have an agenda and come with an expectation Mm -hmm. 
which is obviously still a thing that we think about quite a bit. And that gifts are not ever freely given. Yeah. Which, of course, there is that tension between the pragmatic or the cynical and the romantic, because love Mm -hmm. is also a gift, but does it come with an expectation? Yeah. And also with this discussion of gifts, let's think about how does this reframe Eugenides' gift of the earrings to Atolia, because now we know that this is her her view of gifts, is that they're never freely given. Yeah. And that women understand these things implicitly, having to live in this world. Mm-hmm. Which is maybe, I know we were talking two episodes ago about whether or not Eugenides is really thinking about, you know, like the power dynamic and the deeper implications of his gift. So this here really makes a lot of sense, thinking that, you know, Atolia would be reading much more into it than he would, mm-hmm. as we were kind of thinking a few episodes ago. Yeah, because he, he lives in a world where you where you give. He he gives a lot of things to the god Eugenides. He dedicates things on the altar. And that's a big part of his religious practice. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that like when he marries her and becomes king, people interpret that as a transaction. Yeah. Uh, he wanted to marry her in order to become king, but really that's a gift not only of, you know, his his feeling and love for her, but also his life in a way that he did not plan for or necessarily mm-hmm. want. And so it, it, like, publicly, it is this kind of transactional relationship, but privately it's something different. Mm-hmm. And then I don't think I have anything too big to say about Janet and Atolia in this chapter. Yeah, do I insult your lover? Not a lover. Merely my choice for a king, Nehusharesh. That's the last line of the chapter, right? Yep. Yeah, so that's that's one more step forward in the love plot. But also, it's so unromantic. Right. <laughs> yeah. So we know that here, finally, we have it out that she's on board, obviously, but we don't get the emotional reality yet. Mm-hmm. Also, I think that that maybe it it's echoed later in when Costas sees them kiss mm-hmm. and says that it's doesn't seem like a kiss between lovers even, but specifically between a husband and wife. Mm-hmm. And so they almost skip they skip being lovers <laughs> and they go right to that uh home type of that very elusive harmony but also they're like they're not in harmony or in like they're constantly pushing and pulling (sighs) these books man there's so much so much i feel like we never hit all of the things like i feel like we could just go right through again from the beginning and still find more yeah for every episode we always think of more things after we shut the mics off (sighs) like wait and there's always way more then we can keep in a 20-minute episode anyway. (laughs) (laughs) That's chapter 18. Next week, Edis and Atelier talk face-to-face, and we'll see if this book passes the Bechdel test. Send us your comments, questions, and thoughts. Chime in at atelianarchives.tumblr.com. Be blessed in your endeavors. Thank you for listening. This has been an amateur embroidery production. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, anywhere podcasts are available.